Spencer, Epic Rides Mountain Bike Racing. Tell me about your event this past weekend. Yeah, Fred, well, I think we should wait to get really into it because we've got a lot of Giro d'Italia action. But for starters, I got to say this race in Grand Junction was really, really rocky and rough. It's it's great riding. It's real proper mountain bike riding in this area. They call the lunch loops sort of the generic term for this uh, BLM land south of the town. Man, it's just so rough. And thankfully, I was aboard my trusty Fazari Signal Peak mountain bike. Fazari sponsoring this podcast. They're also sponsoring all of our coverage of Epic Rides Series mountain bike races this season. And this bike, you know, it's it's 120 mils travel front and rear. That's maybe a little longer travel than sort of a conventional cross-country bike, but it's so nice to have when you're on that rough chop out there and just blasting through the rocks and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, the great thing too, Fred, is that for someone like you who's maybe not quite as gnarly as me, they got a bunch of cool road bikes. And, well, I was going to say, does yeah. it come with like an airbag or nah. like a, a, does it cover your hospital bills nah, when you crash? Yeah, nah, protective gears, you're going to have to take care of protective gear on your own. But if you want to just stick to road, which you probably should, uh, Fazari's got a great lineup. And the cool thing about it is you, you just order it online, they'll ship it direct to you, customize it, get whatever parts you want. They build it by hand, send it to you. Real easy to build it up right out of the box. I mean, they even write a nice little love note for you on the inside of the box. They're they're so kind when they sent me mine for the whiskey uh, last month. It was it warmed my cold little heart. Wow. Well, thanks to Fazari for sponsoring this week's episode of the only podcast. Let's get on the show. There's a voice in your ear coming from a bunker in an office park somewhere in Boulder, Colorado. It must be the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison. Dane Cash, not here. Spencer, I left him in California. Oh, man, he's out in California. Yeah. So, so rad, man. Dane got so into the Amgen Tour of California that he just decided to stay out there. I bid him adieu in Sacramento, and I think he's just going to wait around for next year's race. Find some tasty waves, bruh. Yeah, or just like camp out and, and wait to interview Egan Bernal again. I think Dane really liked Egan Bernal. He's a likable guy. Yeah. I mean... Just rides aggressive, really talented youngster. Drops TJ Van Garder in. Oh, I don't like that though. I mean, we can't we can't be having that happen to our hometown hero. Well, we're gonna be seeing a lot more Egan Bernal because do 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 breaking news. He's racing the Tour de France, according to Spanish media. Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. I mean, Team Sky has got to be one of the hardest teams to make for the tour to to get on that roster. I mean, come on, it's it's just a murderer's row, those guys. But. Uh, Hey, he's proven himself so far, hasn't he? Yeah, he was so fast at the Tour of California that just no one was really even in the same ballpark when it came to those climbs. But Spencer, we have a great episode going mm. on today. We have the Giro d'Italia. Right. We had the individual time trial go on today, which I know TT's your your favorite type of races to watch, uh, right? Well, I don't know if I... Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> We're going to check in with our boys on the ground in Italy. We're going to hear from Swain Tuft, Canadian Superman, talking about Team Mitchelton Scott. Uh, then... We're going to talk a little mountain bike racing because, as the listeners heard, you were at the Epic Rides event this past weekend in yes, Grand I Junction. Was. Sure was. Uh, you know, Spencer, I'm seeing a little battle damage on your arm. Yep. Yep. Oh, I definitely went down. I I was trying to figure this one out for uh, my little uh, my little roundup after the race that I published today on Tuesday uh, when we're recording this. Uh, you know, snow snakes when you're skiing. Like it's a thing where you're just skiing along and all of a sudden you kind of mysteriously, your ski gets snatched and you just, just land right on your face. The puzzled the look on my snake. face means that it's never happened to anybody. Cause never, I, sh- come on, you I never shred a snow hard. Snake? You, <laughs> snow snakes are a real thing. And I think they're a real thing for mountain biking also, because I just kind of randomly hit a rock and it just exploded. JRA. JRA. Yep. Totally JRA. Hey, man, like skin heals, mountain bikes don't grow back together. So glad to see that the only damage was to your uh, epidermis over there. Spencer, you're going to heal up and tell us all about Epic Rides. Finally, I have some uh, residual takes from the mm. tour of California. They've just been burning a hole in my uh, my, my take brain. Cortex. Yeah. And so we're going to get to those. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so let's get to it. Giro d'Italia, individual time trial. Yes. This was the stage that we were looking to after the weekend because throughout this Giro, we've been looking at this this time trial stage. It was a 34, almost 35 kilometers as the day in which Tom Dumoulin was going to unmask himself to be the world's greatest time trialist and just put a ton of time into Simon Yates and take back the Malia Rosa. 
and it didn't quite happen. Dumoulin had a good ride. He was third overall, but he only took back about a minute on Simon Yates, and he had more than two minutes of a deficit going in. Yeah, it was a fine ride for Dumoulin. I don't think it was his best work. It uh, it's a type of ride that that would happen to I think most most of these guys at the end of you know a long Grand Tour. They're they're 16 days in at this point. Um, the, you, you see it year in and year out where the time trial specialists don't always pull out their absolute best ride late in a grand tour in these time trials. That's why a guy like Chris Froome, for instance, can sometimes even win a time trial stage late in a race like this. You know, Tony Martin put up a good time early, couldn't hang on, got bumped out of there by uh, Rowan Dennis, of all people. So, yeah, Tom Dumoulin, I think he did all he could, but really... He's just he just set himself back too much in these climbs where where at where where Simon Yates was just bludgeoning him on the climbs. Yeah, Dumoulin was doing like the tired man head shake as he came into the uh, finish line of the time trial, just kind of like head bob. Uh, and 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 yeah, you you looked at the time and he's up there, but you know as we saw the opening time trial, he was smoking Rowan Dennis and Tony Martin and just didn't quite have it today. So I mean that really sets the stage now. For Simon Yates to be able to, uh, you know, he needs to hold on for these last three big climbing days. But um, then we're probably looking at a Simon Yates victory. But, so Spencer, here's the thing about time trials. You know, you're watching your grand tour. You're firing up that Fubo live feed every morning. You're making breakfast and tuning in and just being like, man, I'm going to see some action today on the Paso de Italian word I can't even uh, pronounce. And then there comes a time trial. And so, I, I, I don't know, what do you like to do as a viewer on time trial days. Mm. Time trial days, you know, I feel like time trial days are really tailor-made for some hardcore gambling. Like maybe <laughs> with some friends, you could find an illegal site, like unit, like one of those weird Euro betting sites or something. But I mean, just think of it. It's like you can bet on how much time uh, Yates loses. You can bet on how much time so-and-so maybe wins by, who's going to win, who's going to lose, what's the top 10 of the GC going to look like after this? How's it going to uh -huh. reshuffle? Like there's a lot, I feel like the, the average road stage, it does offer more excitement. Those climbs, those descents, all of that, a lot of unpredictability. But I mean, results wise, you kind of usually end up with maybe some surprises, but a lot of times they all finish together or something like that. Now a time trial, it's just a pure test. So you know, it really opens the door for just like losing a lot of money on these weird European sites and maybe getting a Mac Keeper virus. Yeah, I think there could be like some good prop bets to come out of it. Ooh, prop bets are great like, too. Like, uh, which guy is going to somehow crack the top 10 despite all signs pointing to him being totally bad at time trial and really burned out? Oh, hey, looking at you, Fabio Aru. Fabio <laughs> Aru. Wow. Or, or uh, better than that, that's kind of, that's a pretty run of the mill bet. I'm talking real hardcore prop bet where you're like, which which uh, rider in the very early part of the starting order will scrawl a love letter on his chest and cross the line with his skin suit unzipped to uh, ask for a date, like uh, our old friend Victor Campaners did uh, last year. Yeah. I, I think the tour time trialer. Maybe it was the Giro. I can't remember. No signs this year, Victor Campaners. Yeah. He actually dropped out after this stage. Real disappointing. Well, maybe uh, he had didn't uh, have, uh, he had plans tonight. Yeah, ooh, you know? <laughs> he had a hot date. Uh, that, that Aru finish, have you seen the clip on Twitter? of Tony Martin totally rolling his eyes <laughs> as Fabio Aru finishes. Mm, this is scheisse. He's not as good as I think so. Yeah, I think he's going, wow, he's really racing old school in this and, stage today. And, and can I add, like, what the heck is the point of Fabio Aru burying himself in this time trial? Like, he's totally out of the conversation on GC. No way he's winning the stage itself. Like, this is just wasted energy as far as I'm concerned. Save it up for the mountains, Fabio, and show us some fireworks. Win one of those mountain stages in the end as yeah, far as I'm concerned. I think that might have something to do with uh, Team UAE Emirates Ooh. management Ooh. not being so happy with old Fabio because <laughs> he came in with pretty high hopes. I mean, he was def he was our, like three-star Giro favorite. When we put yeah. together our Giro right. list, he was right behind Dumoulin. Really let us down. And has just been kind of a flame out. And from what I've been hearing, all is not well in UAE Team Emirates land because, man, they're big signings this year. 
That's that would be Alexander Kristoff, Dan Martin, and Fabio Aru. Big, big old disappointments. Yeah. And, um, um, what I like to do on the time trial morning is I usually go on a bike ride because ah, good, yeah. why watch a time trial? All that that stuff is going to be on Twitter anyway. That's true. Uh, and then just like look at the splits afterwards and say, yeah. man, I'm glad I went on a bike ride. Yeah, and you you know then you can catch up on any important gifs like you know really crazy crash or some yeah. some guy hurling his time trial bike into the field because the wackadoo shifting system didn't work. That type, yeah, that type of stuff. You fun. mean like time trial meltdowns? Oh, time trial meltdowns are great. Did anybody have a time trial meltdown today, Spencer? Mm, Thibaut Pino to me was like kind of a stinker. I mean, yeah, he's he's still hanging on to fifth overall, but. At, for all intents and purposes, everyone talks about Pino as like being a legit GC guy who can put in a good time trial, right? I mean, that's kind of his MO, but man, he just has a way of always finding, to, he just always seems to choke at some point in these grand tours. And boy, he really, he wrote himself out of a podium yeah. position as far as I'm concerned. I mean, now he's like over a, you know, over a minute off the podium at this point. I don't see it happening. Yeah, he was three minutes and 19 seconds down was beat by noted time trialist Elia Viviani, <laughs> uh, also beat by George Bennett, who struggles in the time trial. Um, disappointing time trial again from uh, Michael Woods mm. of Team EF Education First, Draypack Cannondale. You know, Michael Woods has struggled in time trials. We know that uh, he's not the the world's best time trialist, but that's pretty far down there. So uh, Yeah, and I believe he also has had some issues this Giro with some illness and I think perhaps a crash as well along the way. I think yeah. he's had a few speed bumps um, and his first week was pretty strong. He's putting in some good results then, but I think he had some trouble in week two. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's hear from our boys on the ground. Do we want to uh, throw to Gregor and Hoodie on the side of some mountain? Yes. Or maybe they're in like a quaint little Italian pub drinking grappa. I'm not sure. I can never tell with those guys. Maybe they're in a teeny tiny Italian rental car looking at a map trying to figure out where to go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hi, this is Andrew Hood here in Rovereto. We're here with uh, Gregor Brown, our contributor. After a really wild and woolly last couple of days, huh, Gregor? Yeah, yeah, especially with the, the rain and the colder temperatures we had in, in both Montes Oncolon and Zapata. What a great weekend. I enjoyed that. And, of course, the rest day and catching up with all the riders and then coming to this day, the time trial, which was the race of truth for Simon Yates and his bid for the overall, overall the Giro d'Italia. Yeah, we had really kind of the best uh, the, the Giro of the last couple of days. We had the Zocalon, the epic climb up there. Zapata on Sunday, which really tilted the race towards uh, Yates' favor. Rest day yesterday after a long drive for the teams coming into the rest day across the the dark valleys of the, of the Dolomiti. And then today, Adam Yates, yeah, I wouldn't call it a home run, but he really kind of did a lot to help himself to try to win this Giro. Yeah, that was a that was a I guess you could say it was a home run after launching the Scud missile in the Zapata stage from 18 kilometers out and then defending himself. What was it? I think we had a, a minute 15. Was he uh, between quotes only lost to Tom Dumoulin and that was a win for Simon Yates to only lose a minute 15 to the world champion time trialist the Dutchman Tom Dumoulin and the defending champion of the Giro d'Italia. So. Simon heads into these next uh, three crucial days after the Lago de Azeo stage tomorrow with the pink jersey and a good chance to win the overall, become the first British rider to win the overall with a certain Chris Froome in the race, which uh, the attention has just shifted off of him over to Simon Yates. Yeah, that's right. There were some interesting questions today to Yates about his case in 2016 when he received a backdated four-month ban. And Chris Froome suddenly is out of the frame. I'm sure he probably doesn't mind that at all. He, he climbed back up into fourth. But man, Froome had a great victory on Saturday. You know, it seemed like the real Froome was back, but he put so much into that climb that I don't think he had much left in the tank. Even even today, we saw him struggling in the time trial as well as that stage of Zapata. Um, how big was that for Froome to, to win in the Zuckalon? That was big. I mean, uh, just going back to Yates there, just when I've gotten my head around how to pronounce Salbutamol, now, now we're flipping back over to Yates' 2016 uh, anti-doping test from the Perinese, and I still don't quite know what that drug was, but it was an asthma drug. Froome blasted up Zonkalon, and I think that was the win that he wanted and that the fans probably wanted and the organizers wanted out of Froome, uh, because if he's not going to win the overall, 
what a beautiful way to uh, to put a stamp on this race. Winning on the Montes Uncle on stage was many are saying was the queen stage of this race, and it's definitely the hardest climbing, uh, the har- hardest climb in this race. And uh, and he said, yeah, it, it took a little bit out of him coming into the Zapata stage in the next day, where I think he lost around a minute and, and some change. Uh, and he's but he said he had no regrets. He had no regrets about it. Uh, the next day on his birthday, when he uh, lost uh, some time. Yeah, it was interesting to see Froome just really uh, give everything to win on the Zocalan. I think that uh, for him to leave this Giro, even yeah, he still has a realistic chance of, of finishing on the podium. But for him to leave with that stage, I think meant everything in the world to Froome in the context of what he's been through and of what still might happen. We don't quite know, of course, with this unresolved uh, Salbutamol case. But man, you talked to a bunch of the writers, Gregor, on the Zocalan. It's a climb that's so steep. That the time differences weren't really even that big, but uh, you got some good feedback from some of the riders. I mean, is it really the hardest to climb in Europe? Yeah, everybody says yes, yes, and yes. Uh, one one cyclist said no. Uh, Angry Lou is ang- am I pronouncing that right? Angry Lou. Angliru. Angliru. Otherwise known as Angry Lou. Who said that? Uh, was it Adam Hansen? One of these other riders said that 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 climb is harder. It may have been Bing King, but you'll have to watch um, a video I'm going to produce on that later in the week. But uh, they're saying it was definitely the hardest, just with the c- consistent ramps and its gradients going up. Uh, where, whereas your climb there in Spain, it, it has some stair steps, levels out, allows allows the rider to get a, a bit of a breather. Where this is just 10 kilometers of straight struggling uphill, 10.1 um, for those that are keeping the exact score. And it's 22%, but a beautiful climb with the view of the Dolomites and plenty of space for the fans to get out there and, and line the course. And then, of course, in the last kilometers, we see the the Alpini and the and the volunteer policemen just lining the course, and that makes a beautiful shot for the riders when they get up there and they shoot up into the skies. And we were out there in the finish line, and you are shooting up into the sky. Yeah, it really was. I think the Giro in 2007 when they introduced the Zocalan, or no, 2003 when they brought the Zocalan for the first time on the other side of the mountain. Maybe 2004. Maybe 2004, but a long time ago. But it was actually my point I'm trying to make is it was the Giro that really kind of introduced these kind of off-the-scale climbs, you know, the classic old climbs of of uh, the historic cycling were not becoming too easy, but they kind of lacked that, that dr- drama that I think the race organizers are looking for. And since then, we've seen these climbs like the Angludu, you know, one after another, Bola, the Mundo. Finestre, the, which we'll face as the, in the penultimate uh, stage, the last mountain stage, Finestre, which maybe be the penultimate climb in that last mountain stage too, which is a gravel climb. Which is a gravel climb. And it's kind of really opened up the, over the last 10 to 15 years, kind of these different kinds of, of, of racing, which I I think has really brought a lot to cycling. Um, these kind of explosive finales we're seeing, and even it really brought in this kind of new era of modern cycling, which I think has been pretty exciting. But then the next day it was this old school smash mouth racing, wasn't Yatesy jumped clear, 17 k's to go. It accelerated once, gave like an almost lance look backwards, soft room slacking off the back. Yatesy drops the hammer. Vivo and Dumoulin and company chase him back and then he goes again and just drops everyone. Yeah, 18 kilometers out in Zapata and and Dumoulin was saying today after the time trial he just looked exhausted. He said, you know I'm not giving up but what am I to do if I attack Yates is just going to attack doubly as hard and you see him down in the drops, he's he's riding up the climbs attacking in, in the drops of his handlebars looks so smooth and he's a tiny little British rider, twin brother of, of Adam Yates, only 25 years old but has been he's been consistently Coming up to this point uh, with that 2016 sixth place in the Vuelta España that he was saying the other day that that was kind of where it clicked in his head, seventh and the best young rider in the 2017 Tour. And, of course, the team has rallied behind him, signing guys like Roman Kreusinger, Christoph Jules Jensen, and Mikel Neve, who used to help Chris Froome to Tour de France wins. Yeah, I mean, Yates has obviously stepped up, and then in the time trial today, really kind of cementing that lead. He has almost a minute on Dumoulin and three-plus on everybody else. Um, you know, Yates has really emerged as, you know, as kind of that surprise character that's going to come out of uh, you know this next generation of GC writers. You never really know who it's going to be until it happens. And I don't think a lot of people, I think actually Dane Cash was one of the few uh, – uh, commentators in cycling that actually tipped off uh, Simon Yates as one of the uh, potential winners of this Giro. I mean, a lot of people weren't really giving him a five-star rating before this Giro started, and he has by far been the strongest rider. And he's saying now that uh, he can go a little bit more into defensive 
mode into these final five stages. But, uh, you know, this time trial today, you know, the big question was, was it going to be windy, a headwind was going to favor uh, Dumoulin a lot today? Uh, the wind never uh, materialized. You know, we looked at the smokestacks coming in down. There was like we passed a very beautiful valley here where you get vineyards. This this area is famous in Trentos for growing uh, apples as well. You get these uh, Melinda uh, apples that come from this area. But but there was a one a factory where there was some uh, some steam coming out of its um, smokestacks and uh, and and it was just steadily going up into the sky like little clouds and and we were driving down the the autostrada on our way to the stage start uh, stage finish and. And we both looked at each other, and man, it's going to be a tough day for Tom Dumoulin to get some time on on Simon Yates, and and hopefully we wanted that to hopefully make it a, a bit of a closer race because man, in the mountains, Simon Yates looks to be the king. Yeah, all it's gonna, all it has to do really is avoid a, a Stephen Kuiswick uh, situation. It's final five. Kuiswick. Yeah, that, that, we we learned how to say that name a few years ago, and obviously I've already forgotten. Anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll check back in with everybody in the final weekend of the Judith. Yeah, take care, guys. Ciao. So Spencer, you know, a lot of discussion there going on about Simon Yates and um, the strategy that he has to have to win. Um, you know, obviously we have three big mountain stages coming up. Yates has looked almost untouchable in the mountains. And I think it's safe to say that barring disaster, um, he's going to take this thing, which, you know, Spencer, leads me to something I want to talk to you about. Mm. So Simon Yates, uh, he had a little bit of a anti-doping kerfuffle a few years back. In 2016, he tested positive for an asthma medication. Terbutaline. One of my favorite asthma medications. Yeah. At uh, Perry Nice, I believe. That's right. And, you know, he served a four-month ban for this. And the explanation was that, look, this is, you know, both Yates brothers have asthma. Simon has battled asthma. This was his medication. And at the time, Team Orica Scott management had simply failed to register for a therapeutic use exemption, a TUE. This is a medication that you need a TUE for, and they just forgot to do it. It was uh, explained that way to the UCI, and there was a reduced sentence that came down. Simon apologized for this. So it seemed like small potatoes at the time, and I remember it. It was, you know, I feel like it caused a big stir uh, within the British cycling press for a few months, but then it went away. Oh, so, it really upset the apple cart for the Brits, yes. Oh, such a nice lad. Oh, yes. So Simon Yates returned to racing. He was, uh, I believe, fourth place at the Tour de France last year. You know, he's continued on. or He, he won the white jersey at the Tour de France. I can't yeah. get these Yates, these Yates brothers. Man. I know, it's tremendous. I'm keep, pretty keep sure Simon, he was top 10 at, yep. the, at the 2017 Tour, which... Uh, Let's just pull up the old pro cycling stats. It's seventh. He was seventh. So that's a great result. It was a very strong yeah. field that year. Adam was fourth. So that leads me to my question for you, which is uh, we have another British rider who has had asthma, medica- asthma medication problems, that being Chris Froome. Oh, really? I hadn't heard about that. And why do we have a situation where Chris Froome's out of asthma medication, which is, you know, not even uh, a TUE violation. This is just taking too, having, you know, taken too much yeah. of a legal substance. Yeah. You know, why do we have the double standard? Why does Yates's story go away after a few months and Froome's story boil over for months and months and months? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a bit of a double standard. I think it really comes down to those four yellow jerseys hanging up yeah. in Chris Froome's. Uh, romper room above the couch that maybe he sprawls out on from time to time. It's, uh, if you win big races, you, you're just under such heavy scrutiny. I think that Yates is starting to get a little of that scrutiny. It sounds like from, we saw a story from Andrew Hood after the time trial today where, you know, Yates had addressed those, uh, those questions a little bit in the press conference saying he had, you know, he admitted it was an, in, he said it was an innocent mistake by an innocent person. Okay. If you say so, um, you know, it's, it's such a classic cycling thing where it can never be so simple as just a guy winning and, you know, we should be happy for him. It's like, well, but then this thing and the four month ban is, I mean, so to be fair, he served his time. He, he did the penalty and that's the end of it. Right. I mean, at least in terms of this particular instance, uh, you could say that about it. I think it, the question for fans is just 
how do we uh, how do we feel about this performance at the Giro? He's he's been riding spectacularly. There's been Oh, I mean, some people out in the Twitter sphere raising questions about his his power to weight ratio and whether it's, you know, the highest that we've ever seen and things like that. I mean, it's never really possible to know that for sure, but uh, it's pretty darn good, no doubt. So what's the deal with this Giro? Yeah, I think that um, the questions around Simon Yates are natural to come because, like you said, you know, he is a rider that has a ding against him in the past, even if it is an explainable ding. Uh, first of all, the Chris Froome thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, in addition to those four tours, just dominance. Yes. You know, dominance. Right. And, and you know, it's like the, the Chris Froome, the sky thing, it's all shades of yeah. Lance Armstrong and U.S. Postal, and that obviously gives everyone the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. So. No, yeah. Whenever there's dominance like that, people want explanations. Absolutely. So Yates now is dominating the Giro, um, but I think there are some explanations that we can have for this. If we want to... Um, I don't know. If, we, if you want to believe in Yates, because, man, sometimes being a pro cycling fan... It comes down to whether you want to believe or not. Right. So here are my reasons why if you want to believe in Yates, um, these, these are reasons that back this up. The first of all is that, you know, if you look at the climbs that he has been riding away from the field on, they're very steep. They're steep, punchy climbs, climbs that don't necessarily suit his biggest rival, Tom Dumoulin. Now, look, there was... The climb to Gran Sasso d'Italia, which was a long grinder. Um, and Yates wasn't really able to ride away from everyone until right at the very end when he put in a dig, had the explosive speed, and was able to get the gap. But, you know, if you look at the stage to Zapata, if you look at the stage at Montezancolan, you know, Yates is a very small, spindly climber, and he is putting in a big burst to get his gap, and then he's kind of holding it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is, is if you look at the field, you know, we have Tom Dumoulin, who's very strong, but isn't that great, isn't a, a world-class climber. You know, Tom Dumoulin succeeded at last year's Giro d'Italia by staying with Nairo Quintana on some of these long grinder climbs and then limiting his losses on the steep climbs. And to your point, this this particular Giro course, the 2018 one, it does seem less favorable for a guy like Dumoulin. Yeah, and once we get beyond him, you know, it kind of drops off. I mean, look, these guys aren't tomato cans, but we have a diminished Chris Froome. Right. We not not a top form at all. Not top form Chris Froome. We have a curiously strong Domenico Passavivo. Hmm, weird. Who has just found another gear at the, the young age of 35. Is it just me or does it always look like his saddle is like three centimeters too low? Yeah, I, I got to admit, man, I get a kick out of watching that guy, right? I, <laughs> yeah. love, I love watching Domenico Pazzo <laughs> right, attack. Right, right, yeah. And then there's Thibaut Pino, uh, who's now fifth behind Froome out of, after the time yeah. trial. Like we've said before, Pino, eh, he's just always a middling GC guy, and he seems to always have a meltdown at some point. Yeah, notoriously inconsistent, or Can't, consistent up until the one bad day. Yeah, and, and then from there, it's, you know, it's a lot, of, a lot of unknowns, a lot of kind of guys who are just... Finding their form as GC guys. We're talking Roland Dennis, Miguel Angel Lopez, uh, you know, Richard Carapaz, really young guy from uh, Ecuador riding from Movistar coming out of the woodwork, George Bennett. These guys are all great riders, no doubt, but are we talking like a real proper Grand Tour GC field here? I don't think so. I think your point is very correct that um, it's a good time for Yates to win his first uh, Grand Tour. It, it makes sense. And given his career trajectory, I think it's also. A little more believable, you know, with his top 10 at the Vuelta 2016, his top 10 at the Tour in 2017. He's on track, and yeah, I mean, it looks like he's going to be the first Englishman to win this race. Yeah, I mean, second to Richie Port at Romandie last year, a very difficult race. You know, he definitely has... Yeah, and Richie Port's a one-week race specialist, that's really, you true. should say. very yeah. true. Yeah, even he if ha- he's doing a three-week race. He has the results that speak to someone who's capable of... Uh, potentially having a ride like this. There, yes, it does seem to be a that he has taken a step forward this year, especially in terms of his punchy attacks. His ability to get the gap has been what's been very impressive to me. But, you know, the ability to hold the gap and ride at that level, I feel like we've seen that from him yeah. before. And then the other thing to think about is this, the absence of Fabio Aru. I mean, Aru is oh, the climber that yeah. on paper is supposed to have the legs to follow Yates. And, you know, you got to wonder if, a, you know, tip-top shape, 
on form Fabio Aru is like right on the heels of Simon Yates and some of these climbs. Yeah, yeah. I really, it's very disappointing because I was really hoping Fabio Aru would be the guy to to mix it up in this this Giro, but it's not the case. I know, and think about all the amazing, painful oh, pain, Aru pain, pain faces. faces. There were some get. good ones in the time trial today. Yeah. It just was made known to me that there is a Instagram account of, of Fabio Aru pain Wait, faces. Wait, what? Yeah, there's an Instagram account, Fabio Aru pain faces, and it's like, all his pain faces compared to like cartoons and movie characters and like the dude from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark whose face melts in the, the Nazi guy or whatever. That, that's good shit. Yeah. Well, thank God for the internet. Indeed. Uh, you know, let's have uh, let's have a check in with Adam Yates's with Simon Yates's teammate. He's the Yates whisperer. I know that would be uh, Mr. Swain Tuft. Canadian superstar, man who rode his bike across Canada with a giant bear dog in the back of a trailer. Uh, he has some great perspective on the Yates brothers. Here we are, third rest day of the Giro Italia. Swain Tuft. Swain, where are we? Describe the scene right here. Another beautiful Italian hotel. <laughs> I wish it was one of those agriturismos up on the hillsides here, but... Uh, we're in an industrial area in uh, Trento, which is actually a beautiful city. But yeah, unfortunately, we're in an industrial area, which kind of blows my mind. But uh, it's it's not so bad, eh? It's quite a beautiful surrounding, and uh, yeah, rest day. Sometimes you just actually really need to rest. So yeah, been doing a lot of that. Well, good. Thanks for uh, taking a few minutes every day to chat with us. Um, how is it with the hotels during the Giro? Is it just kind of a lottery? Like sometimes you guys get these uh, Ibis-type places and sometimes you get like a little palacete? It's really random, eh? Like sometimes you get some awesome ones. Like I said, some of these smaller mom-and-pop agriturismos where you're out in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's my favorite, personally. Um, and other times you're right, right in the, you know middle of two highways surrounded by electric high wires and uh power plant right next to you that's my version of hell so <laughs> now, have you had did you find a place to kind of find your green space in the morning to do a little stretching a little yoga yeah just out behind here actually there's a chunk of grass so southerly facing it's perfect but uh talk about the vibe here you know this team you've been a part of this team since its inception um you've watched it grow from kind of a, a Merry uh, band of pranksters almost to leading the uh, pink jersey going into the final week of the Giro d'Italia. That's quite a journey. Yeah, man. Uh, to be honest, I almost feel like a proud dad because I've seen most of these guys come in as really young guys and uh, develop into the hitters that they are now who are like, they're racing against the best bike racers in the world here and they're smashing it like... Yeah, it's really it's really something. I remember when you know the, both the Yatesy twins came to the team. I, I I'd heard about them obviously, but I didn't know much about them. And and uh, almost right away, you saw the you saw the talent, but you didn't know how it was going to apply throughout the years. Because some guys come in and and they're just incredibly incredible when they're young, and then sometimes it tapers off. But these guys have just made that steady progression. <laughs> Here we are in the Giro uh, defending the pink jersey for I don't know how many days, and uh, it looks like we have a good shot at, at uh, finishing it off in Rome. So, man, it's been uh, it, it's been an experience, like you said. Our our team's totally changed from 2012. I, f- I feel really lucky to have been part of that whole evolution and still be here <laughs> and being part of this team. It's uh, it's a dream come true for me because, you know, I, as this will be probably my last Grand Tour to be part of this experience no matter what happens at this point it's been uh i couldn't imagine a better way to to finish it off i remember a few years ago we were up somewhere in the dolomiti uh i think half almost all your team had left we coincided one night in a team hotel there were two of you you and uh michael Michael hepburn everyone was gone and the staff was having a good time but uh man now it's all hands on deck I mean, the, the vibe here is still kind of relaxed, though, it feels like. Yeah, I think the the beautiful part is that we've been riding so consistently strong that everyone's carrying that confidence. So when you have confidence, you can let go of the stress. And uh, I think that's really crucial in a, in a team to function as we are because uh, if there's always pressure for the management, always pressure in the riders, and I think it creates a really bad 
precedent and uh, that's the beauty part we just keep doing what we've always been doing the culture of this team is that it just so happens that everyone's in incredible form and Yatesy's just at a, at a super level so all of those things kind of came together for this for this Giro and uh, we're riding that wave but none of us are are worried you know or stressed about this I'm, I mean I'm sure Yatesy feels that that pressure but that's I mean he's I think that's the difference when you're at that level that's part of that job you know and uh, something he's dealing with really well in, in my opinion just as a kind of guy working with him <laughs> I mean, he almost looks like a stone-cold killer when he's out there on the bike. Oh, I mean, these both these brothers, <laughs> they don't mess around. Like, I, like, I've gotten to know their attitudes over the years, and it'll be the hardest stage of the Tour de France, and they're just like, let's go fuck shit up, you know? Like, they're, they're just not afraid. <laughs> they're not afraid of anything, and, and I think there's so much power in that, that mentality and attitude, but also... As a guy who's going to try and help those guys as much as they can, it helps all of us believe and and build towards helping them, you know, do what they need to do. So, I mean, you guys, you guys have been the strongest team so far in this Giro. Yeah, which uh, I, th- I think uh, we we have a really balanced team, and, and but I keep saying it more so than anything, like. As far as talent, some teams have massive riders and huge talents, but what we have here is a culture of guys who care. And when you care, you you give everything. You know, it's not because it's a job. It's not because you're going to get this or that. It's because you actually care about the cause. And uh, when you have everyone buying into that, it's there's a lot of power in it. So. What's been the hardest days in the front for you in this in this Giro? Is there any particular stages or days that have been, you know, really kind of not crisis, but where you guys had to put the hammer down? Jeez, I, I am like a goldfish, man. I forget quickly because I think that's part of survival mode because yeah. I don't like to reminisce too much about those days. It'll be like years down the road. I'll be talking to Sam like, yeah, remember that day on uh, whatever the hell? <laughs> but I think it was the stage we – there was – not sure how many guys were up the road, but we, we had to ride just Sam and myself all day to keep the brake close because Yeti was up. And uh, he ended up winning that day, but it was a long sucker. And uh, both of us, I think, were very empty after this day. Um, but, you know, when, when, you're, when your leader finishes off in that manner, it's just like... I remember going up the final climb and it's just like you're almost re-energized again, you know? When you hear on the radio and the second car comes up and tells you the story, you're just like, wow, man, it's an incredible feeling. So the work is, is completely worth every little bit, you know? How much do you, are you aware of the race? You know, once you do your work, you peel off. Are you getting it over the radio or you almost don't know until you get to the top? As long as you're still close <laughs> enough, <laughs> you... <laughs> I don't know the actual range on the radios, but and it all depends on the contours. But yeah, you can you actually hear quite a bit of what's going on in the finale, and and uh, sometimes you might only hear the team car side. And uh, but yeah, most of the time you know what's going on, and quite often the second car has the television, so they're trying to keep you up to date. Especially in this, sometimes you're in the Gruppetto, it doesn't matter. Like might be the whole team back in the Gruppetto like back in the day <laughs> when we'd bring a sprint squad you know and it was about survival in the mountains instead of like everyone going as deep into the final as, as they can. How much have you had to change your training and preparation to as part of that evolution from being you know a sprint team to being a GC rider? Well I've always kind of been the same whether I'm riding for a sprint team or a GC team. <laughs> I just find with the GC team, I want to be climbing better than I would with the sprint team. But, you know, a lot of my role here is like in between the valleys and I have to get over the climbs and and just continue as long as I can. And sometimes that's easier said than done. And, uh, yeah, it it doesn't really change how I train because I've always just tried to maximize the diesel end of my (laughs) my training. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I find as you get older, the turbo 
doesn't get any better so i just have to like maintain that that higher end of, of diesel that's What's been what's what's it been like riding uh, around Froome during this tour? I mean, I know you might have been in a few races with Chris Froome. It seems like he's obviously been struggling during this tour. Sure, yeah, I have a lot of respect for Froome. He's, uh, you know, I don't I don't know him personally that that well, but uh, he's always been the nicest guy to me, and and uh, yeah, you know, people are human. You, <laughs> You have ebbs and flows and ups and downs, and uh, he's not always going to be the best. But, I mean, he's proven to be consistently one of the best bike racers in the world, so I'd never write the guy off. <laughs> it's not over yet, obviously. What would it mean, do you think, to Simon if he does manage to you know, win this Giro? What does it mean? What would it mean to him? Yeah. Well, I think it's just stamping something all of us on this team knew. And, uh, you know, I think it's just such a massive part of his progression, what he's already done here. He's shown that he's, he's a real hitter. Everyone on the team already knew that, but he's showing the world that now. And, um, geez, I think when you win a Grand Tour, man, it's, uh, <laughs> you've ticked off a lot of boxes. And I think the biggest trick for someone going down that path, in my opinion, is to really enjoy that moment because some people I think it becomes an obsession and it takes a lot of your life away so I think you need to get grounded again and then go back to to the drawing board and and uh, work on the your next goal obviously but not get too carried away in that because it's a massive thing and I think some people it, it might just be too much you know but I think the way these guys are man it, it's not going to be a problem and it's exciting to watch him race because admittedly his time trial is not the best so he has to attack to get time and man that's what people love to see I think if you love bike racing he's <laughs> he makes it exciting for, for bike racers and uh, for the rest of the rest of the day what do you, what do you, what do, you do I'm pretty tuckered out and uh, I'm actually really glad it's a flat time trial tomorrow um, for, almost you know, too rested, right? exactly yeah I mean so normally uh, you'd be stressing sometimes we have a mountain stage on the third rest day starting and you're stressing you're on you're not exactly doing a rest day ride you're trying to find some climb and get a sweat on do some hard work just to keep the engine open so that you don't get piped on the first climb of the day whereas today we actually got to do a nice fun ride into town you know have a sit down and uh and tomorrow, open it up on the TT again. So. All right, well, enjoy your day, and thanks for the time. Thanks, bud. I love Swing Tough. We're going to yeah. miss him. He's a legend. Yeah, he's, um, he's, like the, he's the Chuck Norris of cycling. Yeah, Swing pretty much. doesn't cry. The tears run down the back of his head. <laughs> um, so, Spencer, that's the Giro d'Italia. We're coming to the close here. The next time we check in with everyone, we're going to have some uh, analysis and takes on the final uh, few stages mm. of the Giro. So let's, let's bid adieu to the Giro. I want to talk about mountain bike racing because you were at the second round of the Epic Ride Series out in Grand Junction. Sure was. I wish I was there, man. I was in Tour of California. It just wasn't the same as being at a good old classic mountain bike race. Yeah, getting all dusty. Yeah. Drinking beers. Yeah, it was good good time. So give me the rundown. How was it out there? It's a great race. So this is the second round of the Epic Ride Series. These are the marathon mountain bike races. There's four of them this season. Two more left. Carson City, and then later in October is uh, the race in um, in Bentonville, Arkansas, a new one, Oz Trails. So Grand Junction, it's sort of like the second oldest of these, Whiskey Off-Road being the oldest, and Junction, it's been around six years now, and it really is known for just being such a rocky and challenging race. It's these trails, they're, they're these classic desert trails with rock ledges and sand washes and drop-offs and all sorts of other stuff, and it's to me, it's awesome because I've always found that a lot of the cross-country racing here in the Mountain West and also out to California, too, in a lot of cases, uh, it just isn't particularly difficult from a technical riding standpoint. So it becomes more of a fitness test, becomes more of a, you know, a climber's uh, battle, and that's usually how it ends up. And that's why I'm pretty terrible at mountain bike racing anymore because I'm out here in the land of the climbers. But Junction, it, it gives people who want to, you know, 
let loose a little on some of the technical descents, it gives them a chance. And um, all the riders I talked to out there were excited about it. They, I mean, it's a little intimidating, but they love the challenge. They love something that pushes them like that. And um, it's a great race. And it's also, it's interesting because this particular round of Epic Rides was scheduled up against the Alberstadt World Cup, which was in Germany, uh, same weekend. And you saw some riders, uh, you know, Keegan Swenson, winner of Whiskey, um, Kate Courtney, who was second at Whiskey, they were over in uh, Germany for the World Cup instead. But there were some of these World Cup inclined riders or World Cup riders that uh, that actually were at uh, the Epic Rides. Howard Gratz, for one, really notable uh, rider who was in Grand Junction, and he's going for another overall series win, which he did last year. He won the Grand Junction race like he did last year as well. I talked to him a little about it, and for him, it's a it's a great opportunity for him for his sponsors. It's great great exposure. You know, the the races are still hard. The races are fun. He's actually he's quite good at marathon racing, even though he's young. He's 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 really well equipped for uh, these you know forty fifty mile races. And uh, so, but no, he chose he chose to do the epic rides thing. He is definitely fully focused on trying to make the Olympic team. Um, and uh, you know that'll come in a little while. But for now, he's with the marathon series. Yeah. So that was a similar dynamic of when I was covering mountain bike racing ten years ago, when you had you know the big races going on at the World Cup in Europe, and then maybe one or two rounds in Canada, there'd always be Mont Saint Anne, and then maybe a Bromont. And uh, the North American riders would have to decide whether to go smash themselves in the World Cup series or stay home and race the Norbas or the NMBSs. And it was like, oh man, it made a lot of sense from a marketing standpoint to stay home, even though it made sense from a performance standpoint to go to the World Cup and really test yourself. But, um, you know, like racing in the States is, there's a certain appeal to yeah. these guys. They get to sleep in their own bed. They get to like ride really technical, fun courses that they'd they'd rather do than like some cookie cutter World Cup course. So Well, the the World Cup courses are a lot more technical than they than they were, you know, back in yeah, but it's back multi- in the day that the dinosaurs when you were out there <laughs> well, covering Bart Brenchens and all that. But I mean, it's come multi-lap, on. you know. Right. You're zipping around on some, you know, 4K course. It's, it's totally to, different. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's totally different. Um, now the difference here though, nowadays with Epic rides is just that these are marathon length races versus one cross country race, two of the other, but your, your point is well taken that it is, you know, more comfortable and easier for these guys often. Um, and really the sponsor thing I think is pretty key. I mean, I was talking to, uh, Russell Finsterwald about this. I did a story on him prior to, uh, the junction, uh, edition of the Epic ride series. He ended up actually second in the junction race. So he was talking all about that because he's been a World Cup athlete for a while this year. He's going to focus on the Epic Ride series. And he's like, yeah, man, my my grip sponsor, ODI, like they're not going to be really selling grips in Europe if I'm over there getting whatever mid-pack in, in the Alpstadt World Cup or one of these World Cups. I, you know, if I'm here, if I can, you know, if I can represent the brand here at these Epic Rides races, it's great for my sponsors. They're going to, they're going to sell their product to these people who are showing up and participating in these races. So, it, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. And, um, the good thing is there's lots of choices for mountain bike racers. The tough thing is it's not so simple for, uh, American riders to make an impact on the world cup. And, um, Speaking of which, there is another American rider that we should talk about who is actually going to be making a debut in the World Cup this season, and he is hoping to go to the Olympics in Tokyo, and that is Stephen Hyde, who is the reigning cyclocross national champion. I spoke to him about this at Grand Junction, and kind of a bit of a surprise to me, to be honest, that he's uh, he's going all in on an Olympic bid. He's trying to get a spot on the U.S. team for the Tokyo Games for cross-country mountain bike racing. Yeah, it's not totally unheard of. I remember, you know, I covered mountain bike racing 10 years ago, and uh, Sven Ness actually um, went at, in the height of his cyclocross dominance and got Belgium's, one of two slots for Belgium, for the Olympics, both in 2008 and 2012. And I started covering the World Cup scene 2006, 2007. And Sven, you know, he showed up on the World Cup and everyone was talking about it. And he had to start sort of back road, a middle pack and work his way through. And he had some early failures that then turned to successes. And he eventually got it, you know. And the tough part is there's the technical aspect because, 
you know, mountain bike races mm-hmm. tend to be a lot more. There's there's more technical features than you find in a cyclocross course. And that's definitely something Kaida said he's got yep. to work on. Yep. But then the other part is the effort. Yep. So a one-hour full-gas cyclocross effort where you're putting out tons and tons of power versus a hour-and-a-half to hour and, well, hour and 35-minute World Cup mountain bike course yeah. where it's literally just like out of the saddle, sprinting up the side of a hill, then recovering as you zoom down some crazy descent and then out of the saddle up a some super steep hill again. It's yep. just a real different effort. You're exactly right. And that's something I've talked with Steven about. I also talked with Howard Grotz about it. And, um, you know, pretty much everyone agrees that it is going to take some adaptation. Hyde's getting a new training plan. He's, uh, he's told me that he's doing it in a way that is kind of the sort of the minimum uh, dosage of mountain bike training so that he's not going to, you know, sacrifice too much when it comes to cyclocross. But uh, I think it's, I think it's doable. It's not, it's not going to be easy at all, but I think it's doable. You look at a guy like Matthew Vanderpool, he showed up at Albstadt this past weekend and just crushed it. You know, he, he won the short track. He was second in the cross country. I mean, this guy, I think we can pretty much already say that he is going to be on the Dutch team for the Olympics to, to, to race the cross country on now what he, what he ends up doing in Tokyo is another question, but I mean, this is a man who's very versatile. I think that the hurdle that Hyde faces in qualifying for the American Olympic team is the actual qualification. Oh my so, gosh, yeah. You know, traditionally, uh, there have been automatic qualification standards where if you're an American and you land on a podium at a European World Cup, you qualify. That's really hard to do. In right. fact, American hasn't done that in a really long time. Not in the men's race, that's for sure. So usually it comes down to coach's decision. And oftentimes you're talking about one spot, depending on how the Americans have fared on the World Cup in the previous years, which that determines how many spots spots you get for the Olympics. So one, maybe two men's spots. So, you know, there's a chance that Hyde is going to be going up against Finsterwald and Graz. Oh, uh, there's more than a chance. It's, it's, yeah. it's assured that that and will be the, those will be the guys he has to prove himself against. And it'll be USA Cycling's coaches yeah. trying to decide who it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked with Howard as well about that, um, challenge of trying to get one more start for the Olympics. And, um, you know, some of this comes down to uh, BMX's inclusion mm. in, in the Olympics, freestyle BMX for, for Tokyo. This is kind of reducing the number of cyclists that can be in the cross-country mountain bike race. It's a little tighter now than it used to be. Um, you know, Graz did point out that it could it, that they might have a little better shot now because Chris Blevins will be racing uh, the World Cup this year. He's racing U23 World Cup, but that does still provide some points for the overall nation ranking. I forgot about Blevins. So, yeah, it's, oh, it's possible. I don't. I, I really don't know uh, long-term what we can expect out of Blevins because, you know, obviously he's been proving himself great results at, um, at the, on the road with, with action. You know, he, he was in the mix and in, in a lot of these early pro road tour races, but, uh, you know, he's at Alpstadt and, uh, he, yeah, we'll see. Um, our freestyle BMX podcast, I think that, is that coming up next week or is that yeah. the week after? Yeah. Yeah. It's called Hucking It with Spencer. Hugging it with Spencer. Shabra. Oh, man, I'm looking at those wounds. It looks like you definitely hugged it. Well, we have uh, more mountain bike racing coverage coming up later on in June and into August, so stay tuned. Finally, Spencer, before we get out of here this week, mm. I wanted to touch on a few takes from the Amgen Tour of California. Lay them on me. Just Lay been on kind me. of bouncing around in my head. You okay. know, I was there with Dane. We were covering the race. Um, you know, Bernal won. He's probably going to the tour now. That's going to be really exciting to see. So here's my first take. You know, after the finish of some of these stages, we definitely saw some American riders a little disappointed with their performances. Understandable. You know, it's your home race. You want to do well in front of the TV cameras, in front of the home crowd. And, uh, more than one occasion, some of these American riders, not going to name names, of course, just kind of rode past the journalists. Ooh, just kind of like... Cold shoulder. Yeah, I did the cold shoulder thing. Mm. Did the whole like, hey, you know, like, let's talk about your race. And just like, nah, going to bail out. And that happens from time to time. You know, as journalists, we stand at the finish line and by the buses. And we try to talk to these riders after the finish line about their performances. They are well within their right to tell us to shove it. Uh, here's my take, though. If you're an American rider, this is a tour of California. You got to talk to the media. Yeah. Respect the biz. Respect the biz, man. Like, this is your possible, possibly one or you know, one or two opportunities to, like, talk to home fans and reporters who are there to cover you. 
and it's an opportunity to get some face time, you know, to get some exposure for your sponsors. It's some time. It's it's an opportunity to sort of shift the narrative around. Yeah, you, you, you can tell the story on your own terms if you're yeah. actually speaking to journalists, right? I mean, why not? Just and to like, just tell people to shove it. Yeah. Oh, I had a bad peach. There you go. That's the story. Um, you know, say what you will about old Chris Horner. Remember Chris Horner? Chris mm, Horner always talks to the media. Yes. Chris, Chris Horner would have terrible rides and he would be at the finish line. You'd ask him and he would just like, I don't know, have a Hornerism <laughs> that uh, explained why he was bad or didn't explain it, but just said, yeah, man, I was bad. Here's what went on. Bad Big Mac. Yeah. Like bad that. Big Mac, bad uh, yeah. large fries. Um, I think that I, I've definitely come across riders who in their career are more entertaining and more enlightening in defeat yeah. than they are in victory. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So that's my take. Yeah. Riders. Lighten up, guys. Yeah, talk to the media. Yeah, be cool. Uh, take number two. You know, a lot of people were asking me, what the heck happened to our American riders who were stars at this race last year or in the past few years and showed up and just didn't do that great? You know, I'm thinking specifically of guys like Sepkus, uh, Nielsen Palace. Uh, he's not an American, but uh, Lachlan Morton, you know, great domestic rider. And, and, you know, they've had great showings at this race and here they were not doing the great. What's going on here? And my answer to that is, you know, when you're a domestic rider, and you're targeting the Tour of California, you have months and months and months of time to build up form through training and some racing, but to just sort of unleash it on this race. That's one of the things that I feel like is beautiful about this race is that you have the World Tour guys coming over and they are facing off against primed and ready to go domestic riders. Now, when you graduate from the ranks of domestic riders to the World Tour ranks, you do not have that luxury anymore. Um, a guy like Nilsson Palace, he has already been racing hard, hard races since February. He has not been training specifically for one event. He's been dealing with the rigors of traveling in Europe and getting your head kicked in and trying to recover and getting sick and trying to learn the language and eating new foods. Same with Sepkus. And, you know, it's uh, it, it ends up being a bit more of a difficult ask to have someone, you know, just show up in California after a season racing in Europe and be... Uh, be ready to just dominate. Yeah, I, I see your point. It's um, it's a, I, I've always heard about you know the at least around town here in Boulder some of the some of the pros who who maybe pop in once in a while and will hop in a local crit and they just always tell me those are the hardest races and the worst races for them because all the locals are just firing on all cylinders, excited for the North Boulder Park crit or whatever, you know, local race it is. And they're just travel weary and legs are shot from thousands of kilometers of European racing. And plus they got a big target on their back with a world tour Jersey. So heck yeah, man, not fair, not a fair fight, but Hey, life isn't fair. If you're a cat three and you beat a world tour guy at the group ride, you could be in the world tour someday. Oh, Bill. yeah, that's right. Virtual resume. Virtual resume. Virtual resume. Yeah. Yeah. Was on the Tuesday night ride, totally beat Lachlan Morton in the sprint to the town line. He didn't really know where the sprint was. So, uh, well, hey, you know, what? cycling's a mental game, isn't it? That's true. Not just a strict uh, Watts, Watts competition. Wins a win. Uh, third take. Um, I had people asking me about the overall financial health of the Engine Tour of California. Um, and my answer to that is who cares? Um, you know, you know, the financial health around these big stage races is, oh, man. is always a, is always a topic of discussion because we know that they might go away right. at any moment and yeah, because I mean, like they're always fighting the uphill battle of getting uh, revenue. Yeah. I mean, you know, USA pro challenge, yep. for instance, went away tour to Georgia, you know, or away. even, even, even the smaller races just last week news that uh, North star grand prix is canceled. Yeah. It's a pity. It's a total pity. That is not a huge concern with the people that I talked with uh, about this race. You know, the sponsorship portfolio is strong. Amgen has renewed another multi-year deal. And, of course, this race is attached to AEG. Mr. Fan Phil Anschutz, multi-multi-billionaire, who apparently loves this thing. And um, there wasn't any chatter that I detected that he is going to uh, pull the pin on this thing anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, so... and. You know, re-signed Amgen for a, a multi-year contract was the news. So yep. that's a big injection of hey. uh, support for for the for the race. Uh, and it's know. a it's a positive story. We like having races like the Amgen Tour of California year in year out that we can set our watch to. Um, I can't believe it's been 13 years. I was at the first one. Yeah. 
Tell right? us a story about it, old timer. Well, I was walking around the streets of San Francisco, and Jason Donald almost beat Levi, Levi Leipheimer in an uphill time trial. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So here's a virtual resume. I would beat Jason Donald in the cross races back when he lived here a few years ago. Oh, there you go, man. So technically, I'm a podium finisher in Tour of California time trial. Man. So I'm basically as good as TJ Vanguard in at time trial. Spencer, you are so impressive. I'll uh, be watching the mail from my old jersey. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellonews.com. Subscribe to the Bellonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bellonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Bell News Podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with Brooklyn Boogie Blah playing the Bernard Party Classic Soul Drums. Bell News.